Father, we thank you so much uh, for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to gather in uh, a warm building and uh, be able to uh, sing songs to you. Amazing truth in a lot of these songs. A reminder again that, uh, that you are good, you are love. So again, thank you. Um, ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us this morning. Lord, guide me and direct me so that I may effectively proclaim your word, faithfully proclaim your word. Lord, and that uh, your word would not just be a, a, a cognitive, uh, academic understanding, Lord, but that it would really reach into our hearts, that we would trust it, that we would believe it, and we would live it out. So again, I thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I don't know if I want this thing in front of me or not. I'm hearing a beeping. I'm gonna turn this off mic if that's okay. And it's not that. (laughs) Oh, when in doubt, no, it's Bernie. Woo! <laughs> the burn dog. <laughs> well, if you have your uh, Bibles, go ahead and go to Philippians, the book of Philippians. We are continuing our series looking at this uh, ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church uh, located in the city of Philippi. And uh, as uh, Paul is writing this letter, he's, he's writing as a uh, prisoner in Rome. Um, prior to uh, his imprisonment, uh, Paul would, was going around proclaiming Christ to everybody and anybody, and he was planting churches. He visited the city of Philippi. He planted a church there, and eventually he found himself uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, over there, things didn't go very good for him. Uh, a number of religious leaders uh, accused him with a bunch of, laid on a lot of accusations, and uh, they just wanted him out. They were so frustrated what he was doing. They said, get him out. But Paul was uh, technically a Roman citizen, and as such, he had the right uh, to a trial. Uh, that was a privilege of, of being a Roman citizen. And so he said, hey, I, I'm I want to have a trial before the emperor. And so they shipped him off to Rome. And just getting to Rome was a big to-do. It's a really incredible story. If you want to read that, Acts 20, 21 to 28, it's an incredible story. Um, that's all true. But uh, G, uh, Paul eventually uh, gets, makes his way to, to Rome, where he is most likely on, uh, under house arrest with uh, a Roman guard chained to his wrist 24-7. And so the Roman guards would kind of rotate uh, here and there. And I, honestly, that just is not no, not, no bueno for me. I don't like that. I'm a very private person. And to have someone chained to me and I have to use the restroom, mm, no. But that was Paul's predicament. He was, he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And eventually he gets a visit from a guy named Epaphroditus, who most likely was a leader in the church of Philippi, who brings Paul a gift. 
a financial gift that provides for Paul's needs. And he probably also gives him updates on how the church is going. And Paul's just, he's overwhelmed, he's, he's excited, and he writes this letter as a way to thank them, but also encourage them. The church of Philippi, though it was a, a maturing church, it was a good example of what a church that's constantly studying God's word and growing together looks like, but it wasn't a perfect church. And so Paul has some instructions that he wants to, to give them. And, and when we come to our passage this morning, we're going to be in chapter two. We've already been in this book for, this is our fourth week. We're on chapter two. So, I mean, we're just lightning fast going through this thing. Um, but it's on purpose. We want to take in what, uh, what, what uh, Paul is saying here, the truth here. Uh, and so we're in chapter two. We're going to be starting in, in verse one, and it begins with the word therefore. It's the Greek word un, um, which basically means thus or therefore or in light of. Basically, it's a word that points to its immediate context. It's saying in light of what I just said, so on and so forth. And so what this therefore is pointing to is actually found in chapter 1, verse 27, which is what we call the apodosis. It's like the the conclusion. It's the the main point. In this case, the main uh, command from which Paul's going to take the rest of the letter to explain and expand on. So let's go ahead and get that context real quick. Uh, Chapter 1, starting at verse 27 in Philippians. Paul says only, now that's the Greek word monos, which can literally be translated this one thing. So he's saying, I want you to, this is important, need to focus on this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We looked at that word, conduct yourself. It's one Greek word, it's where we get the word for politics, but it literally means to be a citizen. Philippi, because of its allegiance and support of the empire, was granted the coveted title of a Roman colony. I mean, they're so proud of that title that they even designed the whole city to look like Rome, thus earning the the nickname Little Rome. And uh, as a a Roman colony, those who lived in this Roman colony were Roman citizens, considered Roman citizens. And Rome had a specific way of living. They had a rhetoric that they followed, how to speak, how to behave. And so if you're a Roman citizen, you would conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy or appropriate or fitting for someone who holds that title. In chapter three of Philippians, Paul refers to Christians as citizens of heaven, which kind of has Old Testament uh, roots to it. It could be the, uh, the idea of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of God's eternal kingdom. And as citizens of God's eternal kingdom, we are to live our lives, conduct ourselves in a manner that is fitting or appropriate for those who proclaim the gospel, for those who say they follow Jesus. And, and he brings up, he kind of explains how this looks by bringing up two verbs. One of them is a military term and the other one is an athletic term. He says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel to, uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That word there for standing firmly means to hold your ground. It's not a passive posture, it's an active posture. The enemy's coming and charging and you're holding your ground. You're not gonna let anything uh, come through. He also says um, 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's another Greek word where we get the word athlete. It's the idea of a team working together. You know, everyone has a part to play, but we're all getting our cues from coach Jesus and we all are pursuing one goal. And so we come to this section right here. And um, here, this is where Paul's going to, again, elaborate on. He's going to explain more how this looks. And so as in, in light of that, in light of the fact that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm, holding our ground, striving together, he says, here, this is, this is what I want. Therefore, now we're going to go ahead and read through the entire passage just so that we can get a full-on context, and then we'll kind of take our time going through it. But it says, therefore, if there is any encouragement, this is chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests or your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made into the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But... Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share the joy, your joy with me. So for most of us, we already know that the Bible was not written in English. <gasps> no, the Bible wasn't written. It was written in Hebrew, maybe a little bit of Aramaic and the conversational Koine Greek. Um, and so... When we come to Philippians, it is written in Koine Greek. And as, 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 as much as we have really great translations, I'm reading from the NASB, as much as we have really great English translations, they don't perfectly express what's going on in the Greek. I mean, again, it's just Greek is different than English. And so case in point, when we come to this section of verses 1 through actually verse 4, so of chapter 2, verses one through four, um, 
my Bible is divided, it divides it uh, into two uh, sentences. But in the original Greek, it's just one complete sentence. And the main command is actually the beginning of verse two, make my joy complete. Some scholars will actually say this is the main verb of the entire sentence. And it's not to say that there are not, this sentence isn't built off of other verbs. It's just saying that this is the main verb and all the other verbs uh, explain or expand or modify what he's saying right here. And so the main command is make my joy complete. The word there is a uh, play rao, which literally means to cram to fully furnish, to make full, or to fill up. Basically, what Paul is uh, commanding the Philippians, he's like, I want you to fill my joy to overflowing. I want you to fill my joy to overflowing, not like that child over there. (laughs) Is that poor Sammy? (laughs) Paul saying, make my joy, fill my joy to overflowing. Joy is a big theme in the book of Philippians. He references this Greek word kara and it's a verb equivalent many, many times throughout the entire letter. His whole purpose is that joy is is different. There's a big difference between happiness and joy. And we know we talked about this before, but happiness is the result of a good moment, a, a happy moment. You get married, you, you celebrate a, a birthday, an anniversary. Those are happy moments. And, 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 but, but joy is something that can be experienced regardless of the situation, whether it's a good situation or bad situation. And so I like to define joy as a resilient gladness, something that Paul experienced regardless of what he was going through. I mean, he went through a whole lot. And right now he's writing this while strapped, chained to a Roman guard, and he's talking about joy this resilient joy that he's experiencing. And he desires for the, 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 the church of Philippi to experience this same joy. And he says, fill my joy to overflowing. Basically what he's saying, and I'm gonna use this as an example. Uh, when Paul begins his, his letter, he's, he's like, you know, I, I, have, I have joy. He's like, why? Well, because uh, we're, we're in fellowship with one another. We're, we're partners for the, for the, for the sake of, of, for the cause of Christ and the sake of the gospel. That fills me with joy. I'm also filled with joy because God is at work in you. God is at work in you and he's continuing to work in you. Not only that, I have joy because I have affection deep in my guts, affection for you. And I know you have the same for me. That's awesome. Then he says, I have joy even in the midst of suffering. We looked at that last week. He was suffering. He admits it. He doesn't make light of it. He's like, I'm going through some bad stuff, but I rejoice. Why? Because God is not wasting that suffering. God's using that. God's using that so it's, it's expanding the gospel. The word he uses for expanding is literally a term that was uh, to describe um, engineers who would literally build roads for armies to advance. He says, that's what God's using. He's using my, my suffering for that. Not only that, he's inspiring the other Christians to proclaim the gospel boldly and courageously. That fills me with joy. Now he's saying, Corinthians, I want you to fill my joy to overflowing. That is a lot more messy than I anticipated. But you get the point. 
Fill my joy to overflowing. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to answer why, and he's going to answer how. Some of you are the why people. Maybe you grew up, you were that kid, your parents said, I need you to do something. You're like, why? Why? Well, Paul's going to address that, the why of this command. He's also going to answer the, the how. So for those of you who are more application and in real life, how does this practically look out? He's going to answer that as well. So the first one he's going to do is answer the why. And that begins in verse one. Here he brings up four conditional uh, phrases. We, in, uh, scholars call these first class conditional uh, phrases. They're, they're basically statements that are true. So they're kind of written in a rhetorical way, but they're, they are actually true. And so the if could it be easily translated since or because. But this is the why, this is the why. why. Why, Paul, are we to make your joy overflow? Paul begins, verse one, if there is any encouragement in Christ. In Christ is a phrase that Paul uses again and again and again. That doesn't necessarily refer to your position. It's mainly about your identity. As a follower of Jesus, that is your identity. That's who you are. You are in Christ. Identity is a very powerful thing. Because when you know who you are, you know what to do. You know how to behave. It's like you found your puzzle piece in the puzzle of life. And you're just, ah, now I know what to do. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, they place their identity in a lot of wrong things. So you'll have this one little girl grows up and she draws and her family's like, oh, well, you're the artist of the family. So she attaches herself to that. I'm the artist. She grows up. That's her identity. I'm the artist. I'm the one who draws and I'm, I'm the artist in the family. But eventually she grows up. She goes, graduates high school and goes to a prestigious art uh, uh, school and realizes she's really not that great of an artist. And she's not going to earn a living from doing art. She experiences what we call identity crisis. But wait, I'm, I'm an artist. Now it's gone. Who am I? What am I supposed to do? Couples will fall into this category as well, um, especially if they attach their identity to their children. We're parents. It's who we are. It's what we do. But eventually the, you know, the kids grow up and they leave the house and now the couple's going, who are we? And sadly, a lot of couples will end up divorcing, separating because they're like, I, we don't know what's going on. I mean, that's kind of a lame excuse, but they've attached their identity to that. For others, it, it's actually even more tragic. It's they attach their identity to their pain, to their suffering. I'm, I'm broken. That's who I am. I'm the alcoholic. I'm the drug addict. I'm the sexually abused. I'm the pervert. But what Paul says, if you come to Christ, that you are a new creation. He says, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold the new. And because of that, you are now in Christ. That is your identity. You are no longer what you do. You are no longer who people say you are. You're no longer what people have done to you. You are in Christ. And as a result, that's encouraging. Isn't that encouraging? The word he uses here is uh, parakleis. It's the same uh, word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. 
It's about, it's the idea of someone coming alongside you and helping you, advising you, advocating for you, encouraging you, spurring you on. It could also be translated as comfort, but Paul uses another phrase that fits that a little bit better. So I like encouragement. So Paul's saying, Philippians, do you have encouragement in your identity in Christ? The answer is yes, we do. All right, he moves on to the next one. If there's any consolation of love, here this the word consolation has the idea of like a, a friend wrapping their arm around you and just kind of gently cheering you up and you know, speak, speaking softly to you, giving you comfort. She's like, Philippians, are you not comforted by the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Doesn't that bring you comfort? The answer is, well, yeah. Isn't it comforting to know that God's expression of love to you doesn't just end at your salvation, but it continues on for the rest of your life until you actually fall into his arms at the very end? Doesn't that bring you comfort? The answer, yeah. He continues on. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit... And here he uses the same word he used in chapter one, koinonia. It's, it's the idea of a partnership. And this is, a, this is amazing to me. Because when we go to the, 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 the Old Testament book of Genesis, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters at the moment of creation. We see the Holy Spirit empowering a reluctant leader named Moses to lead an entire nation out of one of the most dangerous and powerful kingdoms on the planet. We see the Holy Spirit um, uh, strengthening a young shepherd boy to defeat a giant. We see Jesus, the incarnate son of of God, in in this world relying on the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his earthly ministry. And this same powerful spirit that raised Christ from the dead resides now in us for those who follow Jesus. That is, just blows my mind. It's just absolutely, that same spirit is in us. Not only is he in us, he's working in through us. It, we're, we're in partnership together. So when, when, I, when, we, when we read our Bibles, we're reading it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. So we're studying it and the Holy Spirit is helping us understand it more and more and more. When we get down on our knees and we pray and we're at the end of a rope, God help me. And sometimes we don't even know how to pray. The Holy Spirit is constantly interceding for us. Isn't that awesome? He's like, Philippians, do you have fellowship? Do you have koinonia of the Spirit? The answer is, yeah. Then finally, he says, if any affection, this is that fun Greek word, splachnon. This is the idea of in your guts, deep um, emotion, deep love. This is the kind of love that Christ has for us. And then compassion is the idea of, of kindness and mercy to show concern. He's like, Corinthians, have you been the recipients of this in your deep in your guts affection and concern and compassion and kindness? And the answer is, Yeah. So then Paul gives a command. Then, in light of all that, make my joy overflow. I love the way Paul always puts a command. He he, he never says, 
you know, if you obey this command, then all this stuff will be true. No, he always starts, if you're in Christ, all this stuff is already true. So in light of that truth, live, live it out. And so that's the why. Why are we supposed to uh, make your joy uh, to overflowing? Because you're, you, you experience the encouragement in your identity in Christ, experience comfort of love, fellowship of the spirit, affection, compassion. Well then, Paul, how? What's the how? Paul says, by being of the same mind. He uses the Greek word for nail. It's, he's gonna use it again and again in this section. But phreneo can be translated mind, but it also can refer to an attitude or an opinion. To be of the same mind, be of the same thought pattern, be of the same opinion, be of the same attitude. Ultimately, what he's talking about is unity. Be united. Be united. Well, then... Uh, okay, Paul, can you elaborate a little bit more on this? How does this actually work? He gives three examples. He says, maintaining, maintaining the same love. Literally, literally translated, possessing or continually having the same love. Not just on occasion. Don't, don't just have this kind of love for each other when you meet for, for pot blessing or for you know, church gatherings or special events. You are to continually possess this love. And it's the same love. It's not like you're showing favorites here. It's the same kind of love. Now that's already pretty, pretty deep right there, pretty heavy. But it gets even more heavy because the word he uses for love is agape. This is not a passive kind of love. It's not a love that is the result of a connection, you know, a a relationship you have with your parents or with a good friend or with someone who likes you or someone you click with. This is an active love. This is a choice. This is choosing to love someone regardless of whether you know them, choosing to devote and love someone even if they don't like you or you don't even like them. It's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated for us when he chose to love us to the point of the cross. That's the kind of agape love. It's this sacrificial devotion. And so how are we to have this unity? We're supposed to have love. Continually possessing, maintaining this same kind of agape love. Now, it's it's... Uh, in, in all honesty, there are, there are some churches. I'm not talking about our church because our church is perfect. But um, uh, there are churches where people will come and they're, they're embracing one another and kiss. Oh, it's so great to see you. It's been a long week. And they sit down and then they kind of turn on the side and they see someone come in and they're like, oh man, they're here. I, that, mm, you know, that person said something to me a few months back that was, I was very offended by it. And I, I, I didn't approach him about it, but I just, I figured it'd be better for me to stew over it and pray for him. But you know, that that's happening. And just, uh, I just, I don't like him. Or other times it could be, oh, you know, I just don't get him. I just don't get him. I've tried. Lord knows I've tried. I've tried to connect with him, but we're on different planets. In fact, he's probably on the planet of the next solar system. It's just, we're completely different. Paul says you're to have the same love for everyone. Continually possess 
love. Don't show favorites. Have that love. Woo! So sad that some people actually make decisions on whether they attend church events or Bible studies because someone they don't like or care for is attending that same event. It's like, what in the world? It just got really quiet right now. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> a little bit of puckering, just, mm, okay. But it's not about us, you guys. I'm not talking about us. We're perfect, right? But the Philippians, they, even though they were maturing in their faith, they were not perfect. And so Paul's saying, you need to be united. How does that look? Maintaining, continuing possessing the same kind of love. And then he goes on, united in spirit, literally translated co-spirited could be like-minded, but also harmonious. Live in harmony with one another. And he's going to explain that a little bit more as we move on. But then he continues, intent on one purpose. He uses that Greek word, phreneo, for the mind, for the opinion, for the attitude. It's focusing your attention on one goal. That's what it looks like to be united. You're loving each other. You're living in harmony with one another. Not perfectly, but you're trying to be one-spirited, co-spirited, and you are all focused on one goal on the same goals at least. Then he continues on, verse three, do nothing from or according to selfishness or empty conceit. The word selfishness has this, um, is, is the attitude of one who demeans themselves for gain. It, it's, it's, they, they, will not, they will stoop to many lows in order to uh, achieve what they want. It's a complete focus on self. A selfish person basically walks around with a mirror. They just walk around with a mirror and what they see is themselves and everything reflects themselves. So even in regards to the relationships, it's like, how will this relationship affect me? Or how can I use this relationship to get what I want? You know, it could be that as well. It's, well, you know, uh, if I make this decision, you know, how is that going to affect me? If, if I help this person, what is it going to cost me? It's all focused on self. He says, don't, don't do nothing according to this selfishness. He says, or according to empty conceit. This is the idea of vain glory. Is, is it someone who says, well, I'm all that in a bag of chips. Have you heard that expression? Oh, I'm all that in a bag of chips. Oh, well, it must be a California thing. But uh, some people who say that they're all that in a bag of chips, it's like, well, you know, your bag of chips has expired like 12 years ago. You're really not, you, know, you, you really have no, no grounds for your pride. The reality is, is Paul, Paul's, again, command is make my joy overflow. Make my joy overflow. How are we supposed to do that? Be united. And you know what the killers of un unity are? Selfishness and pride. Selfishness and pride, if not taken care of, will infect a church and divide a church, destroy a church. Do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit instead, but in strong contrast, but with humility of mind, with an attitude of humility. How does that look? Paul continues. Regarding one another, 
The idea, the, the, the word for regard is to hold an opinion of someone. And you want to hold a high opinion. It's, it, it could be translated value. Value one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out or focus your attention on your own interests or what you're doing, but also for the interests of others. What does it look like to be humble? Stop focusing on yourself. Stop focusing on yourself. Focus on others. Consider others ahead of your own. Consider their needs ahead of your own, their, their interests ahead of your own. Now, humility doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves. You know, some, there's, a, there's a, 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 a kind of a branch of Christianity where it's called poverty theology. It's like the more you don't care about yourself, literally you're not buying your own clothes and shoes. You're just kind of giving that money to the poor. And oh, the more poor you are, the more holy you are kind of thing is the more because the, the idea uh, the, the the word for hu- humility literally means to be brought low or to willingly place yourself low it's almost like getting on your knees and and bowing before a superior in the first century that wasn't a virtue at all you know it's not about being weak or 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 or, or being brought low it's all about prestige it's all about uh power it's all about prominence for Christians, no, we are to have an attitude, a mind of humility, not thinking of ourselves. So again, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking about ourselves less. That's what humility is. Thinking about ourselves less. We're not the focus. Yes, we've got things we've got to deal with and we're going to attend to those things. We've got family and, and all that and children. And, but the focus is not on us. It's not about achieving our own goals, achieving our own dreams and desires. It's always focused outward. So the selfish person walks around with a mirror. Everything is always reflected about him. A humble person walks around with binoculars, focusing in on people. How can I love them today? How can I serve them today? How can I meet their needs today? That's what a humble person is. Now, (laughs) humility is the exact opposite of selfishness and pride. And sadly, that's exactly what we see in our society today. Selfishness and pride. I mean, just, just go back a year. Go back a year and you go to Costco and all of a sudden you realize, no toilet paper. I've never seen that before. I was in shock. Normally you go to Costco and it's like this, you know, the you know, pyramid of toilet paper. It's just like all the way up to the top. All this toilet paper and you go there and it's all gone. Well, where is it? Is it in the back? No, it's all gone. Well, how many people were here to take all the toilet paper? Well, not that many, but we did get people buying truckloads of this stuff. It's like, Why? Well, because, you know, they're afraid that uh, as the virus continues, it's going to put a stop on, on delivery systems and everything, and they, they want toilet paper. They need toilet paper. It's like, well, so do we. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? And, 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 and it's funny. It was like toilet paper, water. It was all some other weird stuff. It's like, how does that? Okay, whatever. But they're taking stuff, and, and you know, shelves in the markets, even here in Lapine, are all empty. Where is it? Oh, it's like, oh, this is crazy. And then you watch the news and these people, you know, news reporters are interviewing these people 
you know, loading up their trucks with all this paper and water and, you know, bleach and Clorox, all this kind of stuff. And they're asking, so what are you doing? Like, well, I'm a prepper. I'm a prepper and I'm preparing. That's what I'm doing. It's like, no, you're just being selfish. That's what you're doing. You're being selfish. You're basically telling everybody, I don't love you. I value myself more than you. That's what it means. What about pride? Oh my goodness, election year. Oh oh, oh, boy, pride, pride. You know, and it it wasn't just one side. You know, you you have one group that say, oh, we're on the left. well, on your, I'll, I'll go your, your perspective. Here's the left. Oh, the left is, the, is, 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 is all great. You know, we're the best. So no, you're prideful. Well, even the right, the right would say, no, we're the best. We're the most intelligent. We're the most smart. We're the most patriotic. You're acting prideful. You look at the presidential debates, pride. Pride, pride, pride. I don't care who was on what other side. You just saw a display of pride. Let's get a little bit more controversial because I haven't gotten in trouble for a while. But um, I wear my mask. Therefore, I love and respect people. Well, I don't wear my mask because I believe in freedom and, and so forth. I got the, the vaccine. I'm better than you. I didn't get the vaccine. I'm better than you. Pride. All pride. Again, it got really quiet right now. Let's <laughs> just I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. That's the Holy Spirit going prick in your heart. Selfishness and empty conceit. That is the way of the world. Paul says that does not belong in the church. Make my joy overflowing. How? By being united, being of the same mind. Do not do uh, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit because that will destroy, destroy, <coughs> as I choke, destroy unity, which will ultimately rob you of your joy. Instead, be humble. And here in in, in verse five, actually verses five, all the way through um, 11 is uh, what many scholars think is is an early Christian hymn or at least a a liturgical poem that was read or recited uh, during when when Christians would come together for for worship. But, and and there's still debate about that, but whatever it is, this is awesome what Paul brings up. He's like, you wanna know the best example of humility? Let's look at Jesus. And so he says, verse five, he gives a command, have this attitude in yourselves. Again, the Greek word for neo, your mind, your opinion, have this attitude in yourselves, continually have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, now that's an unfortunate translation because it's, it kind of gives the idea that, he used to exist as God, but when he came down to the world, he stopped existing as God. And a lot of, some teachers actually promoted this, heresies were brought out of it, and a lot of cults jump on this and like, ah. But in the Greek, it literally reads, in, um, in, uh, have this uh, attitude in yourselves, also in Christ, Jesus, who continually existing, continually being present in the form of God. 
Now, this might be a little bit thick, and, but I'll try to make this a, a, pretty easy to understand. But the, the, word, the Greek word for form is morphe, and it's, it doesn't necessarily mean a physical shape. It actually is a philosophical term to refer to one's essence and nature. And when he says God, he, there's no definite article there. He's referring to divinity. He's, to, he's referring to what makes God, God. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-awesome. So Jesus has eternally existed. It's part of his nature as divine, as all-powerful, all-knowing, all-awesome. And that fits with what uh, the Apostle John brings up in John uh, 1.1, where he refers to Jesus as the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Continually existed this way. So he existed as God, but he continues on, did not regard, did not regard equality or existence as God, a thing to be grasped. The word to, to be grasped has this idea of, of, of robbing, also eagerly or forcefully taking to use for one's own advantage. Jesus had every right to exercise his divine authority, his divine power and awesomeness, but instead, he chose not to exploit it, not to take advantage of it. Instead, verse 7, but instead of, rather, he emptied himself. And that's the Greek word kenao. Empties is kenosis. Sometimes scholars will say this is the kenosis of, of Jesus. And, and unfortunately, again, so some teachers will latch onto this and say, see, Jesus completely drained himself of his divinity. When he came onto earth, he ceased being God. But that's not ultimately what that word also means. It doesn't just mean empty. It means to also put aside or lay aside. When you put something away or lay, lay something aside, it doesn't cease to exist, correct? It's still there. And so the same thing, Jesus, it completely fully existing as God, as divine, it's part of his essence, part of his nature. He laid it aside. It didn't go away. It's still there. He chose not to use it, chose not, chose not to take advantage of it. He laid it aside, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here again, the, 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 for form, when he says taking on the form of a bondservant, it's the Greek word morphe. So taking on the nature of a bondservant, the Greek word doulos, which is slave. He took on the nature of a slave. Jesus said the son of man did not come to be served, though he had every right to receive it and demand it. But he said the, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus let this go. He laid it aside. He became, took on the, the nature of a, of a servant. And also he was born the way normal people are born as well. <laughs> So what does it look like for, for Jesus to empty himself? It's, it, it means him, him laying inside his divinity, taking on the posture of a servant and also being born the way normal babies get born in this world. And you know, so here you have Jesus uh, who is all powerful, all awesome, all knowing. He becomes a servant. This is the, in John chapter 13, um, Jesus is, Rabbi Jesus takes off his his outer garment, 
lays it aside, gets on his knees, and basically takes the posture of first century that's below him, and he washes the disciples' stinky, dirty feet. That's what it looks like for Jesus to, to empty himself. It's crazy, amazing, so humble. And also, he was born. I mean, here's the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything. He could have entered this world with fanfare and angels and horses and trumpets. Instead, he chose to develop over a period of nine months in his mother's womb and then be born the way babies are born, which is all nasty. I know, you know, it's, oh, it's beautiful. It's a miracle. I'm sorry, wives and mothers, you're up here. Us fathers are down here and we're like, this is nasty. Um, And they're cute, you know, but this is, it's not, that's how Jesus emptied himself, shows his humility. Continuing on, being found in the appearance as a man, literally he was a man, he, he took on the, the form. He was fashioned as a man. He had skin. He had blood. This is something some people will say, oh no, his, his appearance on earth was just more of an illusion. He looked like a human being, but he really wasn't. No, Paul's saying he was found. He was discovered in the external appearance as a man. He really was. He got tired. He got hungry. He grew facial hair. You know, as he grew up, he probably had B.O., body odor, and people, oh, that's sacrilegious. No, that's human. That's what it means to be human. And Jesus assumed that. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. Here's the example. Jesus is our ultimate example of what humility looks like. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus said, I come here to do the will of my father. I don't say anything unless my father tells me to say. He was obedient. He submitted to God the father, even when it led to his death on a cross, painful, shameful death on a cross. Verse nine, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, highly elevated him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The first century, the name didn't just refer to like, my name is Brian. It referred to your reputation, your character, your position, your authority. And so Jesus has been granted by God, favorably been given the name, the reputation, the status, the authority, which is above every other name. Paul uh, brings this up in Ephesians. He actually expands it, referring to authorities in the spiritual realm and above authorities in the physical realm. He is above all names. Verse 10, so that at the name, the reputation, the character, authority of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, that's referring to the spiritual world, and on the earth, those who are living on the earth, and under the earth, probably referring to those who've already died. And that every, verse 11, and that every tongue will confess, will publicly acknowledge and fully agree that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that phrase, Christ is Lord, is, is, was only reserved for emperor of Rome. He, Caesar, is Lord. Here Paul's saying, no, 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 that title belongs to Jesus. Christ is Lord. And one day he's coming back 
and every knee is going to bow, whether willingly or forcefully, they're going to bow. And every single person who said, oh, God didn't exist, or I don't care about God, I don't love, they're going to publicly acknowledge that he is the ruler of everything. And God the Father is going to be exalted. He's going to be glorified because of that. Verse 12, so then in light of all this, in light of this amazing example of humility found in Jesus, my beloved, that means my dearly loved ones, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more to the greater degree in my absence. Uh, Paul was like a spiritual father to these uh, Christian Philippians. You know, and, and just like any parent uh, doesn't want their kids to just obey them when they're there, you know, you know, just like, oh, daddy's here, so I'm obeying. But he wants to also them to obey even when he's not present because that's a matter of the heart. You know, the first way, it's just kind of a matter of appearances. The other area uh, is a matter of the heart. He says, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He gives a command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. We do not earn our salvation. We do not work, uh, 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 work for our salvation. Uh, what, we, what we do is, Paul says, we work it out. What, what, we, what we do um, is in light of our salvation. It's the fruit that is produced because of our salvation. And this word here for work out means to carry to its ultimate conclusion. The ultimate conclusion of our salvation is to be with Jesus forever. And so Paul's saying, continually bring, carry out your salvation to its ultimate conclusion with fear and trembling. So live your life as a, as a follower of Christ, carry it out to its very end, but we don't do it alone. He says, verse, thir- verse three, for it is God who is at work or continually in operation, continually active in you, both to will and to work or function for his good pleasure, for his delight, for his approval. This is amazing right here, what he's saying. Is that as we live our, our life, God is right there working, working, working. He's taking things, good things, bad things, and he's using it to mold us and shape us into the image of his son. And the more we're with him, the more we're studying his word, the more we're trying to walk in step with the spirit, he gives us his desires. We start loving what he loves. We start uh, uh, presenting the, the attitudes and actions that make him pleased. And because of that amazing fact, we are to, uh, Paul says, take the position of reverence and awe in fear and trembling. I mean, this is the creator God, the God who is going to judge the entire world. He's at work, continually active in our, our, our life, continually operating in our life. And then we move to the final um, paragraph of this section, verses 14 through 18, where here Paul um, uh, puts, brings together a lot of Old Testament ideas and themes and imagery. You know, Paul, you know, spent a lot of his life studying the Hebrew scriptures. And here, kind of like an architect, he kind of takes these pieces and he builds this amazing house as he concludes this section. Verse 14, he says, do all things or basically continually do everything without grumbling or disputing. This is kind of hearkening back to the people of Israel. 
you know, the people of Israel, uh, they were, you know, set free. They, they left and they were in the wilderness and, and they grumbled, right? The word for grumbling is murmur or complain. They complained. We're hungry. God provides them some food. We don't like this food anymore. God provides some other food. Wow. Why are we in this desert? They're just completely complaining, complaining and arguing. God, why did you leave us out, lead us out here to die? The word there for uh, disputing is the, is, is the idea of debating. Basically, the Israelites were, were, were questioning God's reasoning skills. You know, why? Why would you do this, God? It's like, oh, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> Paul says, do everything without grumbling or dis- dis- disputing. Don't complain. Anyone like complainers? You know, you, you know the, the, the person who prayed the prayer, oh Lord, send me complainers, send me complainers. You know who prayed that prayer? No one. <laughs> no one. <laughs> complainers are annoying, Right? The thing is, with complaining, that's all tied to selfishness. Bringing up a thing that he brought, uh, he brought up earlier. It's all self-focused. Why me? Why me? You know? As parents, um, if we tell our kids to do something, it's not enough that they just do it. We want them to have a good attitude about it, right? Otherwise, it's, what's the point? You go, little Billy, go ahead and empty out the dishwasher or you know, take out the trash. Oh, why? I don't ever do this. And they go ahead and do it, but their attitude is horrible. Same thing with us as a church. Paul's saying, do whatever you do, do without complaining, do without murmuring. It's all focused on self, what I want. If that complaining is not nipped in the bud, especially at a young age, it just trickles on as they get older. It's like God says, you know, um, uh, to, to give as, as the Lord has prospered you and to give cheerfully. And it's like, oh man, I just got paid. I wanted to get something for myself. Here's my tithe. Okay, Lord, there you go. It's all self. It's all focused on the self. So whereas, whereas grumbling, complaining is focused on self, disputing is focused on pride debating these people are just as annoying these are the individuals that just always have to be right you've probably encountered them you say something and their response is well actually oh you know those people the well actually people well actually and even what they say may be true but it's just you know their heart is like i just want to prove i just want to prove that i am superior I just want to prove that I'm more smarter. My logic is more in tune. My reasoning is more valid. I want people to recognize me. Pride, pride. Paul says, don't do that. Get rid of selfishness. Get rid of pride. Get rid of complaining. Get rid of disputing, debating over things. Why? Because that's going to destroy your unity, which is ultimately going to rob you of your joy. Verse 15 so that you will prove yourself or you will literally become to be blameless and innocent. Again, this is kind of going back to the, the temple uh, worship of the sacrifices. To be blameless is the idea of being without defect, to be faultless. Innocent is the idea of being untainted. Uh, 
without deceit, that you would be blameless and innocent children of God. Beautiful, beautiful title, beautiful position. We are children of God. Above reproach, unblemished, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The word crooked is where we get the word scoliosis. It's this idea of warped and twisted. Perverted is the idea of distorted, corrupt, literally dislocated. among whom you appear as lights in the world. Here, Paul is kind of zooming out and showing the, 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 the Philippians, the big picture of God's plan. He's saying that you as Christians are on mission. You have a job to do. That you are to, to be united, not being selfish, not being prideful, not complaining, not uh, uh, fighting with each other to be united. Why? Well, it's going to benefit you. You're going to experience joy because of that. But on top of that, the world is watching you. The world is looking at you and you are lights in this world. You are lights in this twisted, warped and perverted world. Paul referred to his generation as crooked and perverse. That was uh, that phrase was actually even described of the, um, no, no, that, that phrase was actually used by some prophets in the Old Testament. In their day, that generation was crooked and perverse. Things didn't change for Paul. Things haven't changed for us. We still live in a, in a crooked and warped, perverse generation. Jesus told his disciples that you are the light of the world. You are city on a hill. Let your light shine in such a way that others will see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That's what you're supposed to do. Philippians, you are to not just be these pitiful little candles flickering on and off. You are to be this blazing torch into the world. How do you do that? Verse 16, holding fast the word of life continually possessing this truth, trusting this truth, believing this truth, living this truth out. Another way of, describe, of, of translating holding fast is also holding forth the word of life. It is in this word, the word of life, where people find out how to have eternal life, how to have their sins forgiven, how to experience joy. It's all in here. And as lights in this world, we're to hold forth it to the world. Hold it forth. Paul continues, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory. I will have a basis for boasting because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. To run in vain means to exert oneself. To toil is to, to work so hard you're physically spent. Paul knows a day is gonna come where he's gonna stand before Jesus, his king, and he wants to do so with a clear conscience. He wants to know I have been faithful in what you've called me to do and I have, I have, I have exerted myself you know, to the point of collapse and to exhaustion, just, you know, instructing these Philippians. And I did not do that. It was not a waste of my time. They've heard it, they've believed it, and they're living it out. That's what Paul wants. Verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service or ministry of your faith, I rejoice. He's using a phrase, he's referring to his, his life 
um, as being poured out. He's, he, you know, even if it leads to his death, basically, he's, he's referring to his, his life, his death as, a, as an act of worship to God. He says, even if, I, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, even if I, if I lose my life in my toil and my running, exerting myself for you, I will continually rejoice. I will have joy and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. It's like, I rejoice to overflowing, right? He's like, you, you make my joy overflow. He says, I rejoice. And I don't just let that benefit me and encourage me. I share it with you. And then I want you to experience that same joy in your life. And then I want you to share it with me back. It's this, you know, given, taken, this relationship, this partnership, this fellowship that we have. Again, the, the theme, joy, this resilient gladness that people can experience joy regardless of the situation. And we could ultimately, Paul says, our, our ultimate joy is found in Jesus. Remember, he uses the phrase, uh, to me, uh, for me to live is Christ. Jesus was the center of Paul's life. Jesus was, you know, Paul was absorbed with, 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 with Jesus. Everything was about Jesus. That's what gave his, his ultimate soul-satisfying joy and gladness and purpose and meaning. But he's also able to experience joy in other areas. And he's brought that up in fellowship, even in the midst of suffering. Another way we can enjoy, experience joy, joy to overflowing, is as a church being united. Being united. And, and how is that how do we achieve that unity? Well, it's a selfless love. It's a life of humility. If we, the moment we start allowing selfishness and pride to come into our church, it will infect our church. It will poison our church. It will divide and destroy our church. Paul doesn't want that. He's all, be humble, live a humble life. Selfishness and pride will kill unity and rob us of our joy. There's a, a book by, uh, from a, a guy named Ted Engstrom and he, um, he writes a, a true story of a couple, a husband and wife and uh, the amazing relationship. The husband is paralyzed. He's in, a, he's in a, a wheelchair and he can't move. He needs, he relies on help for his everyday needs. And um, the, 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 in, the, in this a story uh, of this couple, um, the husband shares a letter that he writes to his soon-to-be-born son or daughter. And he's writing to talk about his, uh, his wife. And this is really a, a beautiful illustration of the kind of selfless love and humility of Philippians 2. He says uh, in the letter, "'Your mother is very special.'" Few men know, few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it, when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage, put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. 
Then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the door, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes, me, takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again and reverses the same routine. When it's all over, when it's all finished, with, a real, with real warmth, she'll say, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. I never quite know what to say. That's what it looks like um, <clears throat> for selflessness, for love, for a life of humility. It's the same kind of love, selflessness, and humility that was exemplified in Jesus. It's the same love that we are supposed to have for one another. When we receive this kind of humbleness and selfless love, it brings us joy to overflowing. Words cannot express our gratitude. Just as selflessness and is beautiful, inspiring, and rewarding, so selflessness is so selfishness is ugly, depressing, and demeaning. All war, all hate, all fighting, all conflict, all division result from selfishness and pride. Selfishness creates hard, mean, little people. Selfishness inflicts pain. Selfishness and pride destroys marriages, careers, churches, and lives. Rods of our joy. Paul says, no, I don't want that. I want you to have joy overflowing. And so, with that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you uh, for the ability that we can experience joy Regardless of what we're, we're going through in our lives, we can experience joy, joy to overflowing. And we find that joy ultimately in you by being in Christ. But Lord, we also experience it in other ways. Here, Lord, the Apostle Paul says to experience joy in unity, fueled by humility, selfless love, And Lord, we have to admit this is very, it's easy on page to read, but it's a lot more difficult to carry out. And so Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us because we are in partnership with your Spirit that he would continue to work in us, empowering us to have this kind of selfless love for others, for each other especially here in this church, that we would not do things with with selfish motives or pride, that we would not be complainers or fighters, debaters. We would love each other and that we would exemplify the humility and the love that Jesus did for us. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.